I thought it was uh, a good idea as we head into the potentially schmaltzy season of Christmas uh, to remember or be reminded of the true nature of the Jesus story because we love our nativity event and it's got the, uh, the camel and uh, the little baby Jesus and the sheep come along and then there's the, 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 don- uh, sorry, the donkey first, then the sheep, then the camels and uh, it's a wonderful story and it's easy to get caught up in the kind of fairy tale nature of that story if we're not careful and uh, it's good to be reminded that this is a true story not simply or maybe not even especially in terms of the accuracy of its details but true in the sense that it tells us how the world really works. This is a true story of the way that the kingdom of God encounters the world. And I want to pick up the three uh, little sayings that I've I've highlighted on the front of the news sheet. Jesus initially saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Then there was the rulers and the soldiers mocking Jesus, save yourself. And then at the end, there's one of the criminals saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. So for the religious authorities and the Romans, this was the execution of a criminal. They saw themselves as appropriately executing Jesus as a blasphemer. For reasons that were not particularly transparent, they saw Jesus transgressing their traditional faith and as such they thought the only uh, appropriate remedy was for him to be executed. And it's difficult for us to imagine this, isn't it? I mean, we have theological discussions, sometimes disagreements. We might even have political discussions and disagreements. But how many of us get to the point where we think our opponents really ought to be executed for the positions they hold or the things that they've said or indeed done in their religious uh, expression? Uh, If you're a follower of popular culture, you might have followed the uh, way that the uh, pop singer Kanye West has pursued his uh, religious zeal at the moment and espousing his particular brand of faith. And if you follow Christian social media, you might have noticed there's some Christians who think this is appalling and uh, he shouldn't be out there pretending to be a Christian. And then there's other people going, no, why are you persecuting him? He's doing a great job and all this kind of stuff. And there's a real argy-bargy and nasty things are being said. But I haven't yet heard anyone say, he ought to be executed or they ought to be executed. We just don't escalate to that point these days, do we? But as far as the Roman authorities were concerned, they just wanted to keep the peace. And so if executing this criminal, so-called, was going to keep the peace, that was okay with them. When they realised the Jews' accusations are religious, they quite literally washed their hands of it. That's where I think where that phrase comes from. And Pilate washes his hands. Ah, This is a religious disputation. If you want to crucify him, you go and do that. And as the events unfold, there is a witting and unwitting support of this created narrative that Jesus is in fact a criminal. The Jewish authorities hold a mock trial. They bring in prepared witnesses who testify to things that kind of don't quite add up, but they're enough to muddy the waters. Sounds like a lot of stuff that goes on today in a way. They manage to get the Romans' approval for an execution and they manipulate the onlookers into a furious agreement so that they have virtually universal support crying for Jesus' blood 
Crucify him. He deserves to die. Have you ever felt the power of a large crowd? Whether you've been in a protest march or a massive worship situation, it's a very, very persuasive thing. It's kind of almost intoxicating in a way. People become persuaded by those who are around them and they find it genuinely difficult to resist joining in the flow of whatever it is that's going on. And this can cut in more than one direction. It can be a very positive thing at times and it can also be a very dangerous thing at times. Participants will do things as part of a crowd that they would never conceive of doing as individuals. That's an interesting dynamic to observe in these events. What happens here is so well orchestrated that the events end up having this almost an energy of inevitability about them. This is what must have to happen and this is important because if something is inevitable then it's no one person's responsibility, right? It's not that I could do anything about it to stop it. It was inevitable. And then it's kind of almost like that's God's fault, really, because it's no one person's responsibility. There was nothing anyone could have done about it. In their own minds, they can simply become the effective executioners for a bigger force that was going on. So the people were so on side with this thing, not my fault, it's just a thing that happened. And so they get Jesus on the cross. And here's the really bizarre thing. They haven't forgotten who Jesus was. They know that he healed and saved other people. You can hear it in their conversation. Come on, you saved others. They haven't forgotten. They know who they're dealing with here. They know the good things that Jesus did in his life and ministry. They're not ignorant of who he was amongst them. They haven't forgotten how he cared for people and so forth. And this is a stunning sectioning off of realities. On the one hand, they know Jesus to be a good man. It's undisputable, indisputable, who ostensibly did miracles, which must be from God, right? And on the other hand, they've convinced themselves and everyone else that this person standing before them is nothing more than a blasphemer who deserves to be executed, who deserves to be stopped at all cost. And they say, come on, prove to us that you are the Son of God. They're taunting Jesus to use his almighty powers. If you really are the one who saves, save yourself. Prove to us you are something special. And they no longer recognise the proof of years of living amongst them. Proof that had given so much evidence of who he was. Proof that his life and ministry in their community was so clear in regard to who he was. So they, they think the acid test is to go and save yourself now with your almighty power. And this is a really interesting thing. Because save yourself is the cry of the world. At every turn you can find people who are busy saving themselves. Saving themselves from threats of potential hardship. Saving themselves from difficult interactions. Saving themselves from feelings of guilt or responsibility saving themselves from challenges that, frankly, they will never face. 
And the religious leaders are busy saving themselves, trying to keep out of trouble with the Roman authorities. And the Roman authorities are busy, likewise, seeking to save themselves by effectively quelling unrest so that they don't uh, come in under the radar of the emperor and get in trouble. In a way, these people want Jesus to be more like them. Save yourself. Do what we would do if we were in your situation. This is what we expect. It's sensible to us. This is what we would do. It's an approach that justifies every person's way of interaction in the world. And yet to save himself was the very thing Jesus did not come to do. He came to give himself. He came to save others not himself. And so everyone's mocking and jeering at Jesus. And mockery is a very powerful weapon. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but it's a way of undermining a person so that they no longer have any power in a situation, so they can easily be overcome. I don't know if you remember the um, 2015 incident of the booing of the Sydney Swans uh, indigenous player Adam Goods. They made a documentary about it called The Final Quarter. And there's been lots of uh, analysis about what this booing meant. Every time he got the, the ball, members of the supporters of the opposition team would all boo like this. It was considered a horrific act of uh, racism. And um, the, like I say, lots of analysis for the AFL and the Indigenous community and Australian society, what does this mean? And yet, I have this question. Given that Swan supporters are no more or no less racist than the supporters of any other football team, and given that the Swan supporters weren't booing Adam Goods, I wonder if it's realistic to deduce that this is a racist situation. I think it's more immediately evident that the supporters of whatever team were playing against the Swans wanted their team to win. And if booing Adam Goods put him off his game and gave their side an advantage, they'd boo Adam Goods. It was fair game. All is fair in love and war. Is that a saying? So mockery and throwing someone like that is interesting and it's fascinating to consider what the mocking of Jesus is about in this situation because they'd had the trial already. So they weren't working up evidence against him. They had secured permission from the Roman authorities to execute him. There was no need to persuade anyone there. The crowd had already cried for his blood, crucify him. So there was no need to engender support there. Why did they bother going so far as to mock Jesus? What is the use of this mockery? And it is precisely to confirm to themselves that they have made the right and just decision. This is the mockery of the victim intended to soothe the murderer's consciences. Everyone engages in the mockery because they have all been complicit in this execution. The process helps to ensure no one questions what has gone on. The innocent man is being executed. The last thing the authorities want is anyone to break ranks and unwittingly challenge what has been done. And yet one person does break ranks. 
He's not an overly credible voice. He's one of the co-condemned. But whereas the other criminal, you notice the other ones hanging on the cross, jeers just with everybody else as kind of a last gasp effort to be part of the community that's actually crucifying him, the second criminal doesn't. There's a penetrating honesty and self-awareness in the second criminal. We are hanging here because we deserve to be hanging here. We are criminals. And then he takes responsibility, in a sense. And because he does that, he has the clearest understanding of justice of all the people portrayed in this story. The criminal declares that Jesus is innocent. He has done nothing deserving of this. He's done nothing wrong. And there's something about as soon as we're willing to honestly see ourselves for who we are, that we can assess things much more appropriately, I think. And then this criminal says something quite remarkable. Without the possibility of really understanding precisely what he understood when he said this, the criminal effectively says, Remember me when you come in your kingdom, Jesus. How are we to understand this utterance? Is he saying, Jesus, when you use your power to get free of this predicament, as you ultimately must do, free me as well? Is he saying, Jesus, when you inevitably die, take me to heaven with you? Jesus, when you return with your celestial army, remember I'm on your side. We don't know what this guy was thinking, but what he was saying... What I think we can be very confident he was saying was, Jesus, I'm with you. I'm standing with you. And this is important because the way executions work best is when they are uncontested. They need to be unanimous agreements of everybody present. You don't want dissenters dissenters who challenge the judgment The criminal's singular stance siding with Jesus marks the starting point of the reassessment of what the crucifixion really was all about and opens up an interpretation that has transformed the last 2,000 years of history. And I think we, we easily miss the power of that. In a moment, we're going to be invited to stand around this table. Not only to stand with Jesus, but to stand as the body of Christ. I wonder what you see when you look around as you stand around the table. Do you see the guilty seeking to save themselves? Or do you see one who has given himself that we might follow in that way of giving ourselves? What does this whisper to you about the meaning of the eternal life that Jesus calls us into? Let's ponder those things as we pray. Lord, we thank you that you didn't save yourself. You gave yourself. 
for us. We thank you for the one who understood that and died by your side and opened up a whole new way of understanding. And we thank you for your promise to us that these things are not in vain, but they are part of your eternal kingdom that hold us for all eternity. Help us to follow in your way to the glory of your name. Amen.